I was at the YMCA yesterday. I was just on this, I don't know what it's called. It's like a, it's like a running machine, but you're not running. It's a low resistance thing. And so I do it a lot since I had my hip replaced. And so I was on there and it's got a TV thing and I popped it on and I was scrolling through and I saw this, it was uh, the movie Unbroken being broadcast on, uh, on one of the channels. And it came in just at the point where Louis Zamperini is being beaten in a Japanese uh, prisoner of war camp. Now, I don't know if you saw the movie. I don't know if you know anything about Louis Zamperini. He was a runner. He was an Olympic runner who came in eighth place in the Olympics. He was destined to go back, but then World War II broke out. He became a pilot. And his plane went down over in the Pacific. And when his plane went down, he got so entangled in the wiring and all the stuff of that plane that he was drowning in the plane as it was sinking in the Pacific Ocean. And what happened is he passed out as he's going underwater. And he does not remember how he got up to the water. He could only attribute it. I mean, I think that was the seed of faith that God planted in his life. I think it was God's angel that saved him. Now, before I ever heard about Louis Zamperini, I had a friend in the Marine Corps named Mark Savarese. Mark Savarese um, was one of my flight instructors, and he also became a good friend. And Mark Savarese flew his A-4 Skyhawk into the Sea of Japan at night in a fog. And when he flew into the water, he thought he was dead. Everybody thought he was dead. And his plane began to go down into the Sea of Japan. He doesn't remember what happened except there was a guy, he says, he thought it was a diver who popped his coke fittings, pulled him out of the A-4 Skyhawk, brought him to the surface. And when, they, when he was up there and being rescued by the helicopter, he said, where's the diver? Where's the diver? And they said, there was no diver. There's nobody. And it was that kind of story for Mark Savarese. The same thing that happened to Louis Zamperini. I believe it was an angel. He believes it was an angel. Mark's a believer. Louis Zamperini's a uh, believer. They were God's children. Neither one of them knew it yet. But that did not keep the God of all creation from preserving their life because he knew what he was going to do with them. Well, Louis Zamperini got taken... Well, first of all, he spent 47 days out on the ocean in the wreckage. Can you imagine what that was like? 47 days. For any of you guys who've ever been out on the ocean, 47 days surviving out there, first of all, was a feat. But then he gets interred into a Japanese prisoner of war camp, and it was no, no picnic. It was harsh. They beat him. They, their, their, their life was miserable. They had their, their toilet system over there was nothing but a hole in the ground where all the prisoners did their business. And the prisoners had to go and scoop it out, put it into a big bucket, and then take it down. His job was to take it down to the ocean every day and dump it in. It was awful. Think about that existence for two years. That's what he did. But at about the year and a half mark, they came to him and they said, listen, um, we want you to go with us. And he went with some men in suits and they took him to a radio station. They let him say hello to his mother. They told him, your mom thinks you're dead. Your family, you've been reported as dead. You can tell them your life. So he did that. Well, then they took him and he had a nice meal. 
and he looks around, he sees a couple of other Americans in, in nice uniforms sitting over there. And they said, now we want you to go back and we want you to read this. And it was a propaganda statement saying that Japan was good, America was bad. All drawn out for him. And they put it in front of him. Come on, you can come back and say this. And you can stay here with these guys. You can have this food. You can sleep in nice beds. You don't have to go back to where you were. And he looked down at it. He looked him in the eye and he said, I can't read that. Because it's not true. He wasn't a believer yet. But he was a man of conviction. And when he looked down at that, he said, I can't read that because it's not true. And they said, if you don't read that, you're going to go back. And he went back. And he knew what would await him when he got back. And when he went back, the, the guy who he called the bird, I think, was the head of the prisoner of war camp. He made all the prisoners stand in line to teach him respect. And the way they did it is he made them hit him. And in this particular scene, he's got him standing there and they don't want to hit him because they respect him. They know this guy's a good guy. He, he, is, he is a man of integrity and we don't want to hit him because he's taking a stand. And, and so then they brought out other prisoners and they said they started beating them until they said they'd hit him. And Louis Zamperini looks into their eyes of the, his own countrymen who are being told to come strike him. And he says, do it, do it, do it so that they won't get hurt. Come on, do it. Guy after guy pummeled his face. And he kept saying, and when they wouldn't do it, he would kind of taunt them to make them do it because he did not want the other people to get hurt. That's laying your life down. That's serving, not getting. That's exactly the kind of life Jesus wants from us. But that is not the kind of life that I was sold when I came into the kingdom. And I doubt very many of you were sold that kind of life when you came into the kingdom. You see, we're told that it's all about us and what we get, not what we give. And what Jesus is saying to the disciples in this passage today is what he's been reiterating over and over and over and over. It's almost like a broken record. In fact, if you guys have been coming here for any length of time, I promise you, you think I just say the same thing over and over and over because the text says the same thing over and over and over. And it's simply this. He wants us to serve. He wants us to give. He wants us to follow Him. And, and He lays out very clearly, Matthew does, in chapter 20, verse 17, through the end of the chapter, I think, uh, what we should be seeking in life. And so, as we look at that passage today, I want to ask you this question. What do you seek? Do you want health? You, you want your kids to be able to go to college or you want your grandkids to go to college? You want a 401k to be big and built up so your grandkids can spend all the money that you earn? I mean, that's what most people live for. Most people seek that. They, they seek all the financial blessings. They seek. Listen, there's nothing wrong with working hard and being blessed financially. That's, that's not the issue. The issue is what do you seek? 
See, God calls us to seek following Jesus, not greatness. And for us, we think, man, if, if I just make enough money, if I just get this position, I'll be great. We all want to be great. Don't we? Nobody wants to be a nobody. We all want to be great at something. But God calls us to seek following Jesus, not greatness. Disciples didn't get that. Well, the second thing he calls us to seek is putting others first. Putting others first by serving and giving, not manipulating and taking. Our tendency is to want to take for ourselves. If you come in, and I, I mean, I'm not going to use today, but if you come in and there's five pieces of sandwich left and you haven't got one and there's three, you know, there's like seven of you there. Is your first thought, well, I'm getting mine because I come all the time. Or is your first thought, you know what, I, don't, I need to step back and not take. We tend to want to take. That's just the way God uh, has allowed us to function. That's not the way he intended but it all went downhill after the garden. And so it's in all of us to want to take. But that's not what he wants. And then third, he wants us to seek bringing the needy to Jesus. Not our agenda. That's all in the text today. All of this is in 17 through 34. So if you'll open up your Bible. We're going to read... 17 through 34, and then we'll come back and we'll look at each one of these. Starting in verse 17. Which chapter are we? Uh, we're in Mar uh, Matthew chapter 20. Yeah, I've read it, but yeah. I forgot. That's all right, Matthew chapter 20. And, and if you remember, just to set the stage, what has gone on is last week we looked at the first part of 20, which was, and, and that followed 19. And at the end of 19, you remember what happened? Peter goes, Lord, we've left everything. We've left it all for you. What do we get? And so Jesus takes that opportunity to say the first will be last, the last will be first. And then he puts a parable in there about a, a worker, a landowner who goes out and he gets workers all throughout the day. He pays the last the same thing as he pays the ones who've been working for 12 hours. And the ones who, were pay, who went out and worked from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. were angry because of his generosity to others. And he used that to illustrate a point. That we do not serve out of expectation, we serve out of gratitude. And we're to have compassion on those that he has compassion over and gives things to. And we should, none of us deserve anything we get. He gives us more than we deserve. And to be teachable was what we learned last week. And so that's what leads into this passage today in verse 17. It says, and Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... And he took the 12 disciples aside. That means he pulled them because there was a crowd following him. And he kind of pulled them off to the side. And on the way up, he said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Now that went right over their heads. And this is the third time he's told them. He's more blunt here than any other time. And it still went right over the heads. In Luke, it says, in the Luke account of this, it says they did not understand. One of the things that amazes me uh, is that none of them, after he told them, 
I'm, I'm going to rise on the third day. None of them even went to check the tomb. The berries went. No. And, and they, well, because they never heard it, really. No. They didn't get it. Why? Because you know what? It's, it's funny because my wife and I were talking the other day to someone and we read a letter that was written to them that they had a completely different perspective of than we had. You know why? Because when they read the letter, they read it through the lens of their own hurt by the person that wrote it. But when we heard it, we're like, wow, that is a very apologetic letter. But that's not what they heard. That's not what, because they were listening and reading through the lens of their agenda. And their agenda was, this person hurt me. The disciples had an agenda for Jesus. And their agenda was to overthrow Rome, to reestablish, you know, the Israelites in their glory. And they were going to be a part. And they were just fishermen, a tax collector. I mean, they, they were nobodies. I mean, think about that. They got invited to be with this guy and, and all they could think about, they saw the miracles and they, all they're thinking about is the glory. They're not thinking about the cross or the suffering, even when he's telling them about it. This, listen, it says he's going to be what? Mocked and flogged. You know what flogged is? It's scourge. It means that they take this piece of wood that's got leather strips on it and it's got shards of of, of pottery or shards of metal and they whip your back with it. And he's telling them, this is going to happen to me. They obviously don't get it because James and John go, hey, can we be on your right and left? (laughs) They didn't hear what he was saying because all they were hearing was what they wanted. Mm -hmm. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with her sons and kneeling before him, that word kneeling is the proskuneo that means to bow down and kiss the feet of. And she asked him for something and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, she didn't just go up and do it. We know from another account and um, over in Mark that they asked. It it wasn't the mother. She did ask. I mean, she she asked, but who put her up to it? Yeah, it was it was James and John's. That's what they, their desire was. And, and so they want it, and the mother just asks. You know, as parents, you want what your kids want. You want to help them. Sometimes, even if it's not for their best good, we sometimes we just want them to be happy. And so she went up and asked, and Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm to drink? Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to James and John. He's not talking to the mom there. He's talking to James and John. He says, are you able to drink the cup? The cup there is suffering. That's what it means. He said to them, well, you, you will drink my cup. Well, they said, first of all, we're able. Because all they were thinking about was ambition. I promise you, they weren't thinking about flogging. They weren't thinking about being beheaded. They were thinking about glory. He said, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those who, for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were upset. But Jesus called them to him and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. What did they want? What did they seek? What were the disciples seeking? Glory. Glory. They wanted positions of honor. They wanted to be up front. And James and John are sitting there. You know, I've often wondered, what was it that drove them? Was it Peter continually sticking his foot in his mouth? Was it when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, to him? They go, wow, he's a weak leader. Maybe we should be the one running this outfit. We're two brothers. Andrew's never around anyway. It's just me, you, and Peter, and James. Come on. John's thinking he likes me best anyway. I'm the closest to him. These are real conversations. Think about growing up with your brother think about things that are going on they were thinking we should be the ones in charge peter keeps messing up how many times has jesus gotten on to him and they wanted greatness but jesus said no i want you to seek following me he lays out what it means to follow him Paul didn't understand. You know, Paul wanted to be great. He stuttered under Gamaliel. He wanted to be a great leader, a great Pharisee, so great that he was persecuting Christians because he feared it was against God. He was ignorant. And then God got a hold of him. And when he got a hold of him, he understood that that way included suffering. Why? Because he had been the ones who had brought suffering to a lot of people, including Stephen, who was martyred. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I'm just telling you guys, that was never really emphasized to me early on in my Christian life. What was emphasized to me was all the benefits I get from following Jesus. Nobody ever really told me about this stuff. I mean, that's really not a popular marketing strategy, is it? <laughs> Paul says in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He not only suffered for Jesus, but he suffered for people. Now think about it. I just want you to think for a second of your experiences in the church growing up how often do we see this? Not, not a lot. I'm telling you, when I, when I met John Monger, who was from Bhutan, and he was a guy who spent 18 months in prison and he was beaten every day. When I saw that Louis Zamperini film, I was thinking about John Monger being in a jail. He had been a believer for one year. 
Most of you guys have been in Bible studies for a big part of your life or at least a large the last year. He had been a believer for one year. He didn't come to a weekly Bible study. He had a God that he could meet with every now and then, but he just didn't have a whole lot of Bible knowledge. But what he possessed was the Holy Spirit. And the one who did teach him told him that if you follow Jesus, you will suffer. And that's the truth. You will not escape suffering if you follow Jesus. It's, it's impossible. Now, it looks different for everybody. For Ross, it meant his brother being kidnapped because his parents loved the Lord. It meant his dad dying from lung cancer. It meant his wife dying from lung cancer. And walking through those, you know, those different journeys, exhibiting faith to a world around him that even though those terrible things were happening, he still loved God and believed God was good. For Louis Zamperini, it was different. He lived to be 97. He went through a terrible ordeal before he really trusted Christ. You know how he came to Christ? He was going to a Billy Graham crusade because his wife was dragging him, kicking and screaming to it. She drug him there. He didn't want to go. He listened to the message. He knew he needed to trust Christ because he knew he had been preserved to be in that relationship with God. And he did. He did. And after that, he began giving he became a giver. <clears throat> he began a giver. Started off his life as a stealer. That's why he could run so fast. He'd steal stuff and run away from people. Mm. He went from a taker to a giver. When he told the disciples, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, that they seek authority. He's saying, this is the world system over here. The world system is about power. It's about what you can get. It's doing everything for the here and now. And again, there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with, with being blessed financially and with good health and all these things. But what happens is when you have all these things, you tend to want to hold on to this world. And, and when you hold on to this world, you don't hold on to Jesus quite as hard. You just don't. When you go through these things where you see the devastating effects of sin from times past, you see the devastating results, it makes you want Jesus more because you know this is not the answer here on earth. We don't have the answer. Money's not the answer. Power's not the answer. Relationships aren't the answer. Are they, are they good in some of those? Yeah, but they're not the answer. There's only one answer, and it's Jesus. And God calls us to seek following him, not seek greatness. And that's what he's trying to communicate to the disciples over and over. He also says, put others first. He tells them very specifically. And if you look in, over here in verse 26, he says, it shall not be so among you. In other words, what he's saying is, if you're my followers, you better be living for other people. You put others first. It says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That word there is diakonos, which we get the word deacon from. It means to serve. But then he takes it a step further. He says, and whoever would be first, what, what, what were they jockeying for? First position, right? They wanted the greatest benefit. And he says, whoever's going to be first among you must be your slave. Here's the thing, not every servant 
was a slave. But every slave's a servant. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, I'm going to get into that because basically the request of the disciples shows their blindness. It shows their blindness. They're supposed to be his followers, right? See, you you often wonder, well, why does he put two blind men here? I mean, he's already healed blind men. Back in chapter 9, we saw he healed two blind men. Why why is he healing blind men here? Remember, who is laying out the Scriptures? God is. He is orchestrating Matthew's pen to put everything, to give us a visual demonstration in the blind man. I mean, the disciples, he's showing, he's putting it there. The, The people reading this will read that. As they read this, they're sitting there going, wow, these men were blind, they were needy, And he healed them. And then it says what? At the end, it says they followed him. The followers were following, but they were blind. Because they were blinded, what? By their ambition. But he says very clearly in this slave-servant thing that we are to put others first by giving and serving instead of manipulating and taking. James, remember last week in James, we talked, we, I, I read James 3, 14 through 16. If you expand that out to 4, 1 through 3 in the book of James, it talks about the reason that there's arguments, there's quarrels, the reasons you don't get your prayers answered. It's all the same that was, we, we covered last week in 3, 14, 16. Envy and ambition. Envy and ambition. And where did uh, James say those came from? Do you remember? Where? Within. Well, it, it came within, but he said it, it came actually from, the, they were demonic, from the world. It is not from God. Ambition, he says, the selfishness, the, the, the ambition, the, that, that quarreling over envy, that's demonic. It is not from God. There was an article that came out. I meant to print it out and bring it. It came out yesterday in the Gospel Coalition blog about one of the trends that they're seeing in pastors in America is bullying. Mm -hmm. Not sexual immorality, bullying. Mm -hmm. And people are being asked to step down because of bullying people in in their care. And being arrogant, prideful, demanding. He says, that's not the way you should be. In fact, over in Philippians, Paul says it this way. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, laid it aside so that he could come to earth and take the form of a human. Now think about that. The God of the universe who created everything, everything, came and took our measly human form, limiting himself, not He wasn't limited in that any time he could have gone outside of that, but he chose to limit himself to walk in a human body. That meant that he wasn't everywhere at once. But he was still God. But he limited himself. And Paul says that he did that and became obedient even to death on the cross. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. But the suffering came before the glory. See, the problem is the disciples wanted the glory with no suffering. Mm. 
And that's the way we are. Nobody wants pain. <laughs> I mean, we're not going, hey, I want some. Throw some suffering over here. And it doesn't mean you go look for it, but you should have an expectation that if you're following Jesus, you're going to go through suffering. Mm. Plain and simple. You cannot escape it. Even John, who wasn't martyred, but spent a life in exile on Patmos. I don't think that was fun. I don't think he had a great time out there by himself. He was exiled, and he probably was beaten a few times in his life, too. Hey, John, what I always thought was cool about this, too, and I'm sure I heard this somewhere else, but is that he doesn't tell them to not want to be great. He just redefines greatness, right? He doesn't redefine it. He actually defines he it the way it. he wants right. it. Right, but the, the desire to be great is okay. It's just... What is real greatness, right? Yeah. So it's greatness in His kingdom. This is how you can be great. Yeah. So we should, we should desire to be great, in the way that He says to be great. But that's not what we seek. You can Absolutely. have. There's a difference between seeking it Absolutely. and just having a desire. I think the reason I say it is sometimes I have heard that and thought, oh, greatness and humility are incompatible. No, they don't go together. And that, and He's not saying that. He's have saying, you Have you ever met? Uh, somebody who's a very, very, very successful CEO or a general or somebody yeah. who's humble. Yeah. Yeah. Makes you want to follow them anywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I've met a couple of guys like that. Usually people at that level step over people. They're not humble people. And, and, and so Jesus is the model. And 1 John 4 says, we love why? Why do we love people? Because He loved us, right? And there's no greater measure of love than laying your life down for people. And the two great commandments are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. And so if that's what we're called to do, and He's saying, listen, the way the Gentiles lead, the way they're great is different. We're not going to be like that. He's calling us to be different. We have to go to the one passage of Scripture where He actually physically demonstrates what it means to serve. And I, I don't even, you know where it is, right? Everybody here knows where that is. And, and what's so crazy about it is, how many times has he given them this message, and he'll give it again, and the night before he dies, they're sitting around the table, and nobody washes feet. They're all going, I'm not doing it. Have you seen his feet, man? I'm not doing that. Nobody wants to do it. And so Jesus drops his robe, and he goes, and one last time, he gives them a physical demonstration of what it means to serve because he washed everybody's feet around that table. And then he said this to him. He said, if I do this, you go do it. If I wash feet, you wash feet. If I serve, you serve. That's what it means. That's what he wants. He wants us to do that. And, and I think that... One quick thing. I want you to notice, too, it says at the end of Matthew, and to give his life, I mean, at, at verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for what? Doesn't say all there, does it? Did you notice that? You think that's a typo? It says many. We're going to see in a a chapter away, maybe two chapters, 
that there's going to be a statement that says, many are called, few are chosen. Amen. Boy, that's hard to wrestle through. But it says it pretty clearly. Not everybody, not everybody is going to partake. There's going to be a lot of religious people that don't know him, that he doesn't know. But those that do know him, they're going to be following Jesus. They're not going to be seeking greatness. That's not going to be their number one priority. They're going to be givers instead of takers. And then the third thing he says in this last thing with the blind, they're going to be bringing needy to Jesus. Bringing the needy to Jesus, not seeking their own agendas. The problem with the disciples right here is God is using in this passage the disciples as object lessons to us of what not to do. Because they're walking with Jesus and they're going through Jericho. Jericho was the last big town before they get to Jerusalem. So they're going through there and as they go through there, there's these two blind beggars. We know one of them's named Bartimaeus. It's over in Mark 10, also in Luke 18. And they're screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And the word there for scream is an animal-like scream, a desperate scream. And what the disciples do, come on, man, come on. Come on up here. No, that's not what they do at all. You know what they did? Shh! He didn't have time. Now, didn't he just rebuke them for doing the same thing with kids? Remember the parents bringing the kids? Hey, he doesn't have time. we got to get to Jerusalem. And so he's walking through Jericho. And by the way, some people make a contradiction because in Luke's account, it says they're walking away from or approaching. And in here, it says they're walking away from. And on Mark, it says walking away from. There were two Jerichos. There was the old Jericho and there was the Herodian Jericho. Two Jerichos. So he literally could have been walking away from one Jericho, approaching the second Jericho. But they were all right there together. Herod rebuilt Jericho on another section. So there's really no contradiction there. And so they're walking. They're telling them to be quiet. And three of the most important words, I think, in evangelism in this passage are when it says, and Jesus stopped. He stopped. He didn't have to stop. But he stopped. And getting back to Harry's point, their request shows that they actually have vision. They, they know. They said, Jesus, have mercy on us. Son of David, twice. Three times they said, Lord. Lord, son, Jesus, Son of David. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, three times in this passage. They believed He could heal. They believed He was needy. The disciples... At this point, they're not thinking they're very needy. They're thinking they need to be up here. We're here. We have arrived. We're with Jesus. That's what they're thinking. You're just blind people. Uh, the crowd was also blind. But, uh, you know, I use this passage a lot to teach evangelism because Jesus was the most important person in the history of the world on his way to do the most important event in history. And as he's going, these blind men crying out to him. And it says, and Jesus stopped. And Jesus looked at him. He said, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? We got Bartimaeus all around us crying. 
They're crying out for mercy. They're blind. And our agendas, our agendas keep us from stopping. I want you to think of a stop sign. Not, we don't like to stop, do we? Let's just be honest. I guarantee you, most every guy in this room, when you see a yellow light, you blow through it. You don't stop. You don't look to check for kids. You blow through the yellow light because you don't want to be stopped by a red light. True or false? True. That's who we are. We don't like waiting. We need to stop. When's the last time you stopped and just had some time with the Lord? I mean, really stopped. And you say, you know what? I'm going to take a, a day this week or half a day this week. And all I'm going to do is take my Bible. I'm going to go out and I'm just going to go to the beach. I'm going to go to a pond. I'm going to go sit in my car. I'm just going to read and I'm going to pray. When's the last time you did that? You see, we get so entangled in our world that we don't stop. And, and Jesus stopped for this guy, uh, these guys who were crying out. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And we've got these people all around us. And I love, you know, Matthew 5 says, we are the salt. We are salt. And so I, I, being a Marine, I like acronyms. So I've got an acronym, salt. Seek opportunities to share our faith. S, seek opportunities to share our faith. A, ask questions to better understand the world that these people are coming from. What did Jesus say? What do you want me to do for you? He asked him a question. Mm -hmm. And then the L, listen intently so we know how to respond. So often as Christians, we're so busy formulating our answers to their questions that we're not even really listening to the heart behind the question. We're, we're defending Christ, trying to, like, He needs our defense. And, and He's wanting us to engage with this person on a heart level. And then T is talk openly about your faith and love for Jesus. Amen. Somebody told Bartimaeus about Jesus. Because he was blind. He couldn't see Him coming. Somebody had to tell him. 95 percent of people that say they're Christians in America have never told one person about Jesus. How can that be? How can that be? So as we close today, I want you to think about these three questions. What am I seeking? Am I serving? Am I salty? Salt again and seek opportunities, ask questions, listen intently, and talk openly. And draw just a little stop sign outlay. I, in fact, every, just take a moment and draw. You know how you uh, stop sign, a little octagon thing? Just draw that and write stop in it. And then underneath, write a little blank. And I want you to think of one person in your life that you know doesn't know Christ. And just write that name down. And ask yourself, am I going to stop my agenda long enough to really pray for this person, to reach out to them, to ask them some questions about their life, to get to know them, to listen to what they have to say, and then talk openly with them about my faith? 
You can talk about God all day long, but boy, when you bring Jesus into it, it changes things. Try that as a social experiment sometime with your friends. If, if friends don't know God, talk to them about God and see, they'll talk to you, but then wait a little while, wait a week or so, and then come back and talk to them about Jesus and see how they respond. Just bring Jesus up. Hey, man, I was, I was having some time with Jesus this morning. Just say that and watch what they do. It's amazing to watch the difference in people. Because you can talk about God all day long, but when you bring Jesus up, they don't like it. So what am I seeking? Am I serving? Am I salty? Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for each person that came today and pray that, Lord, you would take what we looked at in your word, let it percolate in our heart and Lord be lived out in a way that we bring glory to your name today as we leave. And Lord, um, these specific prayer requests for the wisdom for family challenges, we all experience them at different levels. And I just pray, Lord, that you would provide wisdom and guidance and that your love would rule there and your truth would be spoken in love, and that, Lord, you would bring favor and softness to the heart of heart. I pray, Lord, for the job search, for those that, that need provision through a job and your financial provision just to live and eat. You are the great provider, and I ask you, Lord, today provide for that person. Bring encouragement into their lives. And... Um, Remember the Ross Carrier family. We pray for his children and his brother and his sister and the family members as they grieve today. And just remember him and pray, Lord, that they would continue to, to carry on what Ross did before he died. And that's just a love for you and a testimony of uh, trusting you even through hard times. So thank you. We praise you. And uh, we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.